Hello and welcome to the Mastermind Body and Spirit Show. I'm your host, Matt Belair. Today's guest brings warmth, humor, and insight to his work as a writer, presenter, and psychologist, drawing on lived experience as well as on his professional training. For more than 20 years, he worked as a clinical and forensic psychologist in the treatment and assessment of clients ranging from children to adults for the Children's Court Clinic and the Criminal Court. His latest book, The Power of Suffering, Growing Through Life Crisis, draws together the real-life stories of 11 incredible people who survived their crisis and grew in transformative ways. His memoir, How I Rescued My Brain, A Psychologist's Remarkable Recovery from Stroke and Trauma, describes how he implemented his own rehabilitation plan using neuroplasticity, psychology, and social connection. Welcome to the show, David Rowland. Thank you, Matt. It's great to join you. It's great to it's great to have you here. You know, I I was getting introduced to your work and and scrolling through some of the stuff you've been through. It's really amazing. You've had an amazing journey, an amazing work history, amazing personal experience. Um, so, for the audience that isn't aware of your story and your work, why don't you uh, give us a little bit of background on um, who you are, some of the stuff that you've been through, and um, you know your your recent book? Because all of these topics we were discussing before the show are just really relevant to right now and in, in the world that we're living in. Yeah, thank you for that introduction, Matt. Yeah, perhaps I'll just give you a quick rundown of where I come from. I grew up in a very middle-class Australian family. I'm the oldest of four, and my mother was a doctor at that time. She eventually became a psychiatrist, and she was probably my inspiration in terms of the profession that I eventually chose, which was clinical psychology. And I just really loved the way she cared for her patients, her regard for the human of existence and uh, she kept working until she died actually and my father was actually a very unusual man he he left school very early because he was incredibly shy at school but he was a technical wizard and he was great in telecommunications and he i've just uh can't see you now matt did you lose me i should still be yeah. there oh i can't see you i don't know what's happened there Oh, I don't know. My video's still going. Mute my video. <laughs> stop video. Shoot. Well, I'm still here. Okay. Check, uh, check the the video settings. Yeah. Okay, I can see myself. All right, we're back. A little technical glitch. We sorted it out. So, David, please, please continue. Anyway, I was 16 years old, Matt, when I found a book on Sigmund Freud and psychoanalysis. And I had never realized that there was this inner world that people have, you know, like a subconscious world, you know, that we, we think we know everything, but actually there's this subconscious world that we have that often makes decisions for us or motivates to do certain things. And I just thought, wow, you, isn't this amazing that there's this whole aspect of existence that I didn't realize before. And so after reading that book and learning more about psychoanalysis, I thought, well, I definitely want to do psychology. And the first position I had as I, as I, after I graduated was working in the prison system because in those days that was like, you know, on the bottom rung of the ladder for new graduates. 
but, you know, coming from a safe middle-class home, I first discovered and met murderers, paedophiles, uh, drug addicts, you know, the whole range, the whole gamut. And that opened my world yet again. And any notions I had about being able to understand human behavior and why people did things from that psychoanalytic point of view just went out the window. I realized that um, you really just had to be a human being and be present with other people in the very first instance and just understand their story uh, because so many of these guys, it was mainly uh, men I was working with, but occasionally women inmates, I had, you know, I just had not any direct experience like they had had. And this was in the early days, this was in the 1980s when heroin addiction was the big drug of choice when, when there was addiction. And there was nothing being done in the prison system for for drug addiction. So I actually set up a group. I think I believe it was the first group in that jail where I was working. And we used to have a sort of a roundtable group and just the guys would meet weekly. And I became really interested in that addiction process. And then later I was asked to to help run the first major proper drug rehab, alcohol rehab. Uh, center within a very large maximum security prison and once again you know in that jail which had held some of the state's worst prisoners um, I got exposed to more things and fast track 20 years later after you know I've been working for 20 years as a clinical and forensic psychologist all those stories from those jail days and other stories that I'd got through the course of my career came back to haunt me it was like I'd heard so many traumatic stories, stories of bad things happening to people and people doing bad things to others that it caught up with me. And I started to notice that I was getting depressed. I was getting nightmares. I was having difficulty sleeping. I was drinking alcohol, you know, more in excess than, than I would have normally. And I realized something was wrong with me. So I went and saw a very senior clinical psychologist in my area and he said, I think you've actually got post-traumatic stress disorder and depression. You know, it's like all those years of stories have caught up with you. So although I had witnessed some things, some terrible things, and a few times had my life threatened in, in my workplace, it was mainly the vicarious trauma, the secondhand trauma that, that was affecting me. And, uh, you know, I had to pull out of my private practice, which was a very successful practice thinking I'd need six months to get better. But uh, then the financial growth, uh, the GFC a hit, which is a bit like the pandemic thing all over again. Um, and, you know, we, we, I wasn't working. The family were relying on our savings. And we hit the wall financially. And at one point we're facing bankruptcy. And it was around that time that I got a stroke out of the blue. So I, I lost a, a golf ball size a bunch of neurons in in the left side of my cortex that knocked out a quarter of my vision that affected my auditory processing so I had difficulty having conversations and found it inc I had to sleep a lot during the day and I would lose my way even going to to regular places that I knew I would lose my sense of direction so it was a uh, it was a very difficult time and the doctor at that time said, well, the only way, I said, well, what do I do now? You know, how do I get better? And he said, well, the, basically you rest. 
you go home and you don't read anything more demanding than the newspaper. <laughs> so I took his advice and physically I, I, I didn't have any of the loss of mobility that you can get with a stroke, but I was physically very weak and I couldn't uh, raise my head up and down, you know, just to pick something off the floor. I couldn't do that without getting extremely dizzy. So that meant things like yoga and even swimming. You know, I've always been a swimmer in the ocean. I couldn't do that because it would meant my head would go up and down. So basically I had to come up with my own rehab plan and the story of how I did that and what I did to get better from both the stroke from the neurological event and from the psychological trauma, you know, formed the basis of my memoir, How I Rescued My Brain. Holy smokes. Well, there's so much to dive into just on that. Um, I think a lot of people out there have or will experience some sort of trauma as far as finances, losing the job, right? Stress of the family, you know, being a new father, I'm starting to feel that now. And when it's just you, it's totally fine. And so I, you know, but then you have a family, it changes the game dramatically. So I'd love for you to just kind of dive into that. And also I wanted to bring up the idea of you, um, suffering post-traumatic stress syndrome because it uh it it's kind of what i'm going through now with looking at all the negative stuff in the world i kind of looked at human trafficking and and organ harvesting and i bring that up quite often on the podcast and i'm like how do i provide a solution um if i don't become aware of the problem and i had edward miller on the podcast and he talks about ho'oponopono which i think is a great practice i've been trying to do that more and so how do i yeah, what did you what did you learn from that? How did you heal your mind, and how can an individual um, process some of these really negative things that we might be observing on the planet? Because he said, you know, what he said was, uh, "Don't wear it." So he worked in charter schools. He had fifteen uh, charter schools in Florida in lower income areas, and he would wear the trauma of the kids, like he would know about their stories and feel their suffering. But when you're empathetic. It's hard not to, you know, when you're walking down the street and, and I see a homeless person that's suffering or whatever, I feel, I feel it in my body. Or if I look at something on the news, I feel it in my body. And I, and my, my, my brain always goes, how do I help these people if I'm not aware of it? But I don't want to just focus on that because you can have very serious injury and you're not the only person that I've heard. Um, you know, I had Cal Washington on yesterday and after the podcast, he said, you know, one of my friends, he he died. He went down the negative rabbit hole and he told me on his deathbed, he's like, Cal, I couldn't, I couldn't stop looking. Like I just, he's like, this is what did it. And he ended up, you know, having that in the body. So that's just a bit of a rant and I'll let you kind of uh, pick apart what you want from that. <laughs> well, that's a great rant, Barrett, Matt. So thanks for, <laughs> thanks for bringing that up. Uh, look, this is, this is a question I think all of us have to answer at some level. How can we be empathetic? How can we be compassionate but not lose ourselves in that process? And clearly, you know, if you're in a helping profession or you're in a service profession or you're providing help to people, even if you're a teacher, you know, working in a school where clearly some of the kids are not going well, how can you be there for them but not lose yourself? And this is such a crucial question. And I, I can tell you what I discovered about that. Uh, I. Towards the end of my rehab that I describe in How I Rescued My Brain, I, I met a neuroscientist called Dr. Singer. She was from Germany, 
And it just turned out that she was holidaying in my area and one of my colleagues invited her along to do a little home seminar in the lounge room. And this is a, you know, um, a well-being researcher in neuroscience, originally a psychologist. And she explained this to me or to us and I, it suddenly put everything in place. And what she said was that, you know, basically human beings are the most social animal species ever and that's why we're so successful but it's also why we can get into trouble with each other. So it's so important for us to feel connected with one another in a social kind of way. And we experience this first level of connection, which she calls emotional contagion. And emotional contagion would be, for example, you know, if you're at the football stadium and you just feel like you've become part of the crowd and, you know, you, you do and say things when you're a member of that crowd, whether they're getting excited or whether they're getting depressed because your team is not going well, you feel that as a group. And that's emotional contagion. It's happening unconsciously and it's powerful. It's the same if you go to a music concert. It's the same if, you know, you're a performer and you're backstage and some of the other performers start getting nervous and you pick up their nervousness and you weren't nervous before. It's like you can't help it. It's just like this contagious reaction just comes over you. And that's the first stage and that's mostly unconscious. We're not aware that we're picking up this, this contagion of emotion, whether it's positive or it's unhelpful. The second stage is empathy. And empathy really is putting yourself in the other person's shoes. So when I was hearing stories of people that have been through traumatic events and I worked with child abuse victims, for example, um, I would imagine what it was like to be a child and be stuck in that situation. And I would feel what they're feeling and, uh, you know, Dan Siegel, the psychiatrist who wrote the book Mindside, explains this really well. He talks about the resonance circuits in the body, you know, the physical and the neurological circuits in our body, where if I want to feel what you're feeling when you're telling me a story, um, I actually have to experience that feeling in my body to know what that feeling is. And then I might say, oh, so Matt, you're feeling, you know, really uh, depressed about that situation or you're feeling despair. So I'm actually feeling some of that. So I'm exposing myself to whatever you're experiencing when I'm being empathic. And if we stay in that empathetic stage and we go into it day after day after day, and we can do that as a health professional, for example, like I was, or we could do it, you know, as somebody like you who's keen on social justice people that are listening to the news or they're fighting for a cause, whether it's animals or it's for humans or it's the planet, um, and they'll, they'll tap into uh, the despair or whatever the feeling is around that news and they're keeping, that's washing through the system over and over and everybody is going to eventually succumb to that if they just stay in that empathy stage. But there's the higher stage and that's a, uh, that's a mindset of compassion. Now, I, I once wouldn't have said that there was any difference between compassion and empathy until I experienced it myself. And Judy Singer, the neuro, neuroscientist, explained it as being uh, a, another neurological state. And she, she discovered this by accident. She had Matal Ricard, who's the Tibetan Buddhist 
monk who, you know, is famous for writing books on happiness and was a scientist himself, she put him in an MRI machine and said, I want you to feel the suffering of all the world. And this is a very highly experienced meditator, so he can easily do these meditations. And he was in the MRI, functional MRI machine where you can study what's happening in the brain. And after he came out, she said, how are you feeling? And uh, he said, oh, I feel terrible. You know, I feel this suffering all through my body. And he said, so she, after that, she got uh, answers to her questions. He said, can I, can I do that again and do my normal compassionate meditation? Um, and she said, sure, but, you know, go back into the machine. Let's see what that's like. And so he went back into the MRI machine and did his compassion for all beings, which is a different type of meditation. And he came out of it feeling much, much better. He was used to doing this compassionate meditation. And Tanya Singer, the neuroscientist, sorry, I call this Judy before, said, well, wh when I was watching the brainwave activity in your brain, it was actually activating different areas of the brain than when you were doing the empathy one that is experiencing the suffering of all the world. So she said, I think when you do a compassion practice, what you're doing is you're still feeling and acknowledging what's happening in terms of suffering, but you're not being pulled down by it. And she subsequently did some experiments with naive subjects, you know, not long-term meditators, trained them in empathy, trained them in compassion. And those that were trained in compassion could watch distressing things, feel for it and have an understanding of it, but not be pulled down. And so I took that and I did a, a lot of compassion practices. And I can tell you from personal experience without going into a functional MRI machine that it feels really different from just being in empathy. So that's an actual practice that you have to work on um, to build that compassion muscle in your mind and your body. Uh, but the other sh things I think we all need to be careful of is that we need to cut off from the bad news. We need to have breaks from it. And we need to notice what, what it's doing in our body. And that's a mindfulness practice. And with mindfulness becomes uh, a discerning practice, deciding what's good for us and what's not. And if you're not, if you're not monitoring and noticing the internal weather, as I like to call it, within your body and your mind, you can't make good decisions about yourself. You're not noticing what situations are doing to you or what particular people, how they, how you respond to particular people or particular news, you know, what it's doing to you. So that's a long answer to your question. <laughs> uh, that was, that was brilliant. I love that. Um, you know, when you say the, the, monitoring internal weather. I think that's a really brilliant way to put it. I love that analogy. And I just think about uh, Buddhism, they talk about mental nutriments. What are you putting in your mind? And right now in this world, you know, if I didn't work on social media, um, I probably wouldn't even have it. Like I, I curated my news so long ago in Instagram and in Facebook. So what I usually get is just the information that I want. A lot of it's inspiring. A lot of it is um, around information, peak performance, things like that. But since the coronavirus, I changed things and obviously the news feeds changed to figure out what was going on. And a lot of that stuff was negative and it changed my body. It changed my stress levels. It changed a lot of things. And so it's important to know how long you're in it. And so the question I want to ask is, 
Can you give an example of how we might be able to apply the practice of compassion and over empathy? Let's say um, I see some news come out, right? And I'm like, oh my God, that's horrible, right? Or like I go and have an experience now in this world that we're living in. Like, uh, you know, my cousin recently passed and and when we were doing the the funeral and we were doing all that stuff, it was like seeing how divided people were and, and the way that the the rules are set up and how the hospital wouldn't let any family in. It really ticked me off because of the, some of the stuff that I, I looked up. And, and so let's say we're facing something and, and we're in it and we feel like anger or um, sadness for something globally that's happening. How can we apply compassion? Like tactically, what, how do we switch our thinking to make it more empowering? That's another, you know, great, great question, Matt. And look, there's several answers there. The first one I'll, I'll, I'll talk about is compassion practices in and of themselves. You know, we can have compassion for others and we can also have compassion for ourselves. Compassion for others is the sensitivity to others' suffering and a willingness or a motivation to do something to ease that, ease that suffering. But as you probably know, Buddhists talk about wise compassion rather than foolish compassion. So foolish compassion would be an example of that would be, you know, someone is, is swimming in the river or in the ocean and they're, and they're struggling and they're, uh, you know, they need help, they're calling out for help. And you might respond to that and dive into the water, but you're actually not a strong swimmer yourself. <laughs> or, you know, the conditions are so bad that you're going to go under as well. That would be foolish compassion. I mean, it would be wiser then to try and find somebody that can help. Um, so we've got to have wise compassion and know when to step in and to help, knowing what we're capable of. And self-compassion includes, you know, cultivating that sense of, of warmness to ourselves. People usually find it easier to be compassionate to others than to themselves. And we need to treat ourselves like we would a loved one. So if we're hurt, and by hurt I don't mean just in a physical sense, could be an emotional sense. If 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 we were caring for somebody else that was hurt like we are, how would we care for them? So we want to apply that care to ourselves. And you know, there's there's mental training you can do to for that. And one of those things is to invoke a. a a compassionate uh, colleague or a person. So when I do a compassion practice, one of the ones that I do is a loving kindness practice where I first of all focus on somebody that I have love for and that's usually my three daughters and I cultivate that sense of love, that sense of uh, loving kindness. And then I put that same sense onto myself so I cultivate that loving kindness for myself. So I've engendered the feeling, first of all, and then I apply it to myself. And then I apply it to somebody that it's easy to apply to. It could be an acquaintance or somebody that I may have just met in the street that day, and I apply it to them. And then I might apply it to somebody that's, you know, a little bit difficult in my life. And then I might apply it in a geographical sense. You know, I might apply it to my whole community. Imagine my whole community being taken care of, having feelings of loving kindness for them, expand it to my country or, or expand it to the world. And uh, 
we actually cultivate this feeling and it allows us to be with suffering of others and have this feeling of kindness, loving kindness, um, without without going under. So that's the first part of the answer to your question is that we, we, we need to cultivate this thing purposely like we would practice anything, you know, we, any type of technique that we would at the gym, you know, to do weightlifting when we learn a certain technique, like we would do exercises to play piano in a performance. We don't do the practice at the performance. We do the practice before we get to the performance. But the second thing is, and it comes to uh, this idea, contemporary idea of suffering, uh, which I talk about in, in my most recent book, The Power of Suffering. And what I've discovered is that in, in the investigation that I did, which was over three years, talking to lots of people and reading research, is that we can create suffering for ourselves when we can't accept how things are for the time being. So, so with you know, with the current situation, with the pandemic, um, you know, all of us are experiencing losses of freedom of various kinds. And I'm not talking about whether that's right or wrong. I'm just saying, well, that's how it is. And so when we don't accept something is the way it is, at least for the time being, it doesn't mean you can't work to change it. But if, if, if I can't, do something for the time being that I would like to do, but I keep wanting it to change. I keep wanting it to be how it always was. I'm actually creating suffering for myself. It's, it's a situation, like you talked about, you know, a relative that's died. Uh, my, my ex-mother-in-law died last week and I went to the funeral yesterday and we can't bring back somebody who's passed or is no longer in our life or we can't bring back a job that's gone or a business that's gone. We can't bring back, bring back lots of things that have happened that are outside of our control. But the more we keep wanting to make it happen again or recreate it, the more we're creating suffering. So the first part of moving on is acceptance. This is how it is now. And certainly when somebody has died, we know we can't bring them back. But at some point in the grieving process, we want to say, this is how it is now, but I can still live with this person. I can still have a relationship with them, even though they're not physically present. So I'll cultivate a new type of relationship. And that's a sign that you're moving on. Those are really great and practical. Um, I really love the the loving kindness meditation because um, I think there's this this quote, I don't know if the Buddha said it, but it said, no one in the universe deserves your love and compassion as much as you do. Uh, or no, it's you yourself as much as anybody else in the universe deserves your love and compassion. And it's so true. One of the analogies I think about is going to Burning Man because Burning Man's a really wild environment. and um, But it's it's really hard as far as sandiness and environment. It's so hot. It's so dusty. It's terrible. And um, and sometimes it's awesome, but the environment's tough. And so if you're going out there, a lot of the time you forget water, you don't bring enough. And so if, if somebody comes up to me and says, Hey man, like I could really use some water. And if I don't have any water to spare, I can't give them any. And it's so essential and so fundamental water. And so I kind of equate that to the self love. 
if we don't have that for ourselves, the compassion, the love and the kindness, we're not generating that. So people are not feeling it emotionally because it's just the way it is. We're vibrational beings where like you were talking about, the emotions are contagious. So, you know, when somebody comes into a room and they're really depressed or they're really angry or they're suffering, you can feel it. Right. And uh, when somebody comes in super joyous and loving and kind, you can feel that too. It lifts the room. It's a lot lighter. And so we do have to cultivate that skill ourselves, And it's the most fundamental thing we can do to kind of help our community and, and help other people. We have to be able to experience that because, you know, and the, another analogy I use for the compassion is like, if you're with your friend hiking and he breaks his leg, you don't break your leg too. You know, you have to stay strong to get yeah. them out. And so I think emotionally, we're not as well trained to deal with the things that we emotion and uh, emotionally experience as humans. And these are really fantastic tools. What I'd love to ask is some of the neuroscience and the neuroplasticity, like coming back from a stroke and dealing with all the stuff that you were dealing with. I know that you studied uh, brain science and, and maybe you can talk a little bit about what is most important for us to know and, and what practices do we use so we can be content. Like one of the ideas I think about with what you're sharing is the Zen idea of non- uh, non-attachment. So you're just kind of surrendering. It's like, it is the way it is, right? We're not our non-resistance. We're not resisting that. It doesn't mean you can't move toward making change, but if you resist how it is, it's going to create that suffering. So you accept it as it is, but then you can still act within your power to make changes, make decisions and things like that. So I'd love for you to speak on that a little bit. Yeah, great. Thanks, Matt. Um, I think if I can give one example, uh, when I recovered sufficiently enough after my stroke and it was clear I couldn't go back to my clinical forensic psychology work, partly because, you know, I could be re-exposed to trauma situations, but also because I experienced a lot of memory loss after my stroke. I actually forgot a lot of facts and the names of people and names of things and uh, it was taking a long time for my memory to sort of come good. So it was, I was advised that, that I shouldn't go back to my psychology work and nor did I feel like doing that at that point because, you know, I'd spent 20 plus years helping people and I, and I actually, something changed and I thought, well, I'd like to help people, but in a different way, but I didn't know in what way. So it took, in the beginning, it took, it took me 16 months or 18 months with a brain injury, it's an invisible injury. It's not like you've lost a leg and it's pretty obvious then what you can and you can't do, and it's obvious to other people what you can and can't do. With an invisible injury where you actually look like you did before, uh, you don't know what you can do and what you can't do until it's the first time you've done that thing again. So, uh, you know, I started reading books, for example. I was reading on neuroscience because I was looking at ways to get my brain working again. And, you know, I'm so used to reading uh, scientific papers, journals, textbooks, and, you know, I majored in zoology at, at, at university as well as psychology, and I studied neuropsychology and knew how to assess brain injury and so on. So I had sort of more than the average knowledge, but I couldn't, I'd read a page of a technical book on neuroscience, and I couldn't remember what I'd just read by the time I got to the end of the page. So I, I learned a technique which was just to write notes as I was reading it through and make one document where I'd add all these notes together and reread my document over and over again. 
And so what neuroplasticity means is that we have to create new circuits, new neural circuits, because the old ones have gone or they're lost. In my case, you know, some of the circuits were dead. The, the, brain, the brain cells had died. So I learned one of the techniques was repetition, just doing it over and over again. And I did that in lots of different ways um, through my reading and understanding, for example. But um, it took me about 18 months before I worked out all the things that I could do like I'd done before and all the things I couldn't do. And once I reached that 18-month mark, because I thought I might do some more study, change profession, that sort of thing, and I realized, no, I can't because my memory is not great. Uh, having conversations was still very tiring and I was getting still a lot of mental fatigue, which is a common outcome from brain. I just couldn't sit through lectures, you know, day in, day out. So that's when I started to look at doing different things and once I reached that point of acceptance, and this is the first takeaway lesson here, is when you're coming back from some trauma, we've got to reach that stage of acceptance where we know what we can do and what we can't do like we did before. Um, and then look for the new doors opening, the new opportunities. And that's, the first, that's one of the early signs of post-traumatic growth is you look for new opportunities and you welcome them in. And that's when I started thinking, well, I can write. I've always liked writing, so maybe I could write about my story and, you know, publish a book and that, that would help people and maybe I could talk about it. Um, the second thing I did was I did brain training, specific brain training. So I knew what the deficits were in my brain. I'd lost a quarter of my vision, and, which wasn't a problem with my eyes, it was, it was actually up in the brain, the processing part of vision. But I also lost a lot of um, auditory processing. So I, I was having trouble distinguishing words. People might be speaking English, which is my first language, but it was like I was hearing it as a foreigner. It was like English was a second language for me. So I knew I needed to work on my auditory processing. So I found a, a computer-based brain training program which I could use to focus on auditory processing like how to distinguish a B and a V sound you know it's mainly the consonants that I was having trouble distinguishing so I did practice that over and over again and in this program it showed you your progress and so I could see my week by week pro progress and I can only do that for half an hour each day before I'd get so fatigued and so neuroplasticity was creating new neural circuits in just being able to distinguish sounds of words, you know, that other people were speaking. The other thing, and, and so I did that for several months and then, you know, really improved my ability to uh, process auditory information. The third thing I did was I realised that mindfulness and mindfulness meditation improved brain function in particular ways. I was still getting a lot of emotional ups and downs, I guess, from the trauma and the loss and, you know, the despair I was feeling. I also had very, you know, points of strong suicidal ideation, which I'd never before and I'd had in my life, and that was very scary for me. Um, so I realised I needed to manage my emotions better. And mindfulness meditation, I learned, strengthens a particular pathway of the brain from the frontal cortex, the area in the front part of our head, 
to the amygdala, which is the fight-flight response part of the brain. So instead of, you know, just being hypervigilant and being on edge all the time, I needed to calm that, uh, you know, manage my emotions better. And mindfulness meditation actually strengthens the network that runs from the front part of the brain, which is more the adult part of the brain, which actually looks at the whole context and say, you know, if you see a stick in the ground and you think it's a snake, it says, no, it's a stick in the ground. It's not a snake. You can calm down. Um, and, and, and that meditation would strengthen that. But it also has been shown that improves the quality of your attention. So I was getting a lot of mental fatigue. So my, my window of being able to work effectively was much shortened in my day. So what window I had, I had to have high quality attention, you know, to read these books I was talking about and work on my rehabilitation. So uh, meditation actually improves the quality of your attention. So I would get more done in the hours that I had that were useful hours than I would have before. And then the final thing was uh, social connection. And, you know, I opened up to being with people that I never would have been with before. And I certainly gravitated towards people that also had life traumas but survived them and grown from them and become wiser people. And I found that they had a better sense of acceptance, better understanding of how I was. It wasn't always the case that health professionals were the best people for me to be around because they weren't always, sometimes they had this superior attitude, you know, this expert attitude, and we need to be understood first before someone can help us. We, to develop trust, we need that person to feel like they understand us. And people that have been through trauma and survived and grown from that already have this understanding. And so being with those kinds of people became very important for me. Wow, that's amazing. Those are all incredibly helpful and uh, um, practical ways, you know, to go through something that's challenging. It doesn't make it easy, um, but at least there's a there's a path, you know, and, and uh, it's it's great that you have the scientific background and, and you can explain a little bit of the neurology because sometimes we don't know why we do something. It's like, oh, why do I have to get to acceptance or why would I do mindfulness training or things like that? But you know, you were in a position where you were forced to do some of this brain training and you could see the development. And if we can engage in some of these practices consistently, we're going to feel the benefits viscerally. But unless we do it, we're not going to experience it. And yours is just another incredible story about how these techniques, which aren't that complicated, it's just we need to engage in them for a period of time so we can experience that. You know, at the beginning of the show, uh, you're saying you're in Australia in Byron Bay. And one of my first really long meditation sits was in Mullumbimby in this koala habitat where I had this camper and I would just have a fire and I would meditate for long hours at a time for a few months. And it was a really profound experience. And it's always stuck with me that, you know, kind of like if you learn how to surf, it's a real pain in the butt to catch your first wave proper, properly. But once you do, you could not surf for five years and still, still be able to have that understanding. And it's way better if you surf every day. And it's way better if you continue the practice every day, because you're going to continue to experience those benefits. One thing I'd love for you to speak on is your PhD. So you did a PhD on performance anxiety. And I'm curious if you can speak a little bit about that in the realm of 
people who just experience anxiety in general, but also the fear of failure. Um, you know, you were doing it from a little bit of a sports psychology standpoint. And, you know, I love coaching people. It's really amazing to help people get very clear on what they want to do to feel empowered to say, you know, I'm capable of, you know, this dream that I can imagine. And I, I'm like, yes, you can do it. And so often it's so curious that so many people, um, don't start on the things that they, that mean the most to them because they they have a fear of ridicule. Like if you're a really good writer, often people won't write because they're so concerned with what people will think they won't get to that performance. So that way, um, you know, they can't get ridiculed and it's only because it matters to them, right? Like I suck at art. I know I suck at art and I could make an art picture. I could throw it on Instagram. People would, you know, say whatever, but for someone who enjoys art, who's actually good at it, they would sometimes those people be more resistant to share it because it's like their identity is on the line and they don't want that crushed or they, you know, how many athletes I worked with where they would, um, always come second, right? They had all the ability to come first, but they would sabotage. And it would be interesting as we would pick it apart. There would always be some event in their past that we would have to get to that they're like, oh, interesting. Like, I don't want to be the one standing out front for some sort of way. There's something in me that, you know, doesn't want, want this to happen because of X, Y, and Z. But when we figured that out, they would win immediately because they would perform at their best. And so, that's my rants. So I'm wondering if you can speak on some of those so we can have tools for people who, who um, do suffer from fear or anxiety. Yeah, sure, Matt. You know, I jokingly say, but I'm half serious when I say it, is that one of the best uh, techniques for getting over performance anxiety is to have a stroke. <laughs> it's an, ex- an extreme not- way. <laughs> <laughs> it's extreme. That's extreme sport. Um, because, you know, what I've noticed with that and, and, and many other people that have been through life-threatening situations and survived them will say, you, 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 you get less big about yourself because you've made so vulnerable, so fragile, and you've had to reach out for help and, you know, get over this idea that, you know, I can cope with everything. I actually need people. Um, you get into this sort of more open uh, awareness and welcoming help that you lose that sense of egoistic self and we we need to lose this sense of egoistic self both to reduce suffering but also to reduce anxiety and i want i just want to validate that some people are naturally more anxious than others i'm not one of those naturally more anxious people i i've realized i'm generally a calm person that's more my nature but, you know, I got post-traumatic stress disorder and I became super anxious. I was getting panic attacks and nightmares. So, you know, it can happen to anyone. But some people are more naturally prone to anxiety. And that can be just simply because of a genetic, the way genetically they're built, but also environmental influences, you know, during their, their growth periods. Um, and also because of particular events that may happen in their past which set them up for being scared of certain situations like phobias, for example. So I just want to validate that, that um, everybody is a bit different. But the first thing I, I discovered when I was working with professional performers and, you know, researching this idea of how you can move through stage fright, and because we're social animals, 
the threat when we go on stage or in a performance situation is not that something physical bad is going to happen to us, although it could feel like that. But in reality, you know, no one is going to harm us if we fluff a line, if we're singing a song or, or we lose the race. But we might feel like they're going to do that. So the threat, we need to look at what is the actual threat. And realistically, you need to evaluate what is the threat. What would happen if, it, if this performance doesn't go the way I think it's going to go? You know, if somebody, I also worked a lot with people who were taking exams and people, you know, either for, you know, truck licenses or doctors doing, you know, vivas where they get, they have to uh, assess a patient and the, and the examiners are watching them to get their diagnosis and say, well, how do you treat this person? Um, so I, I worked with all these people and, and ideally you want to be in a more relaxed state when you're in that performance situation, but still alert. So the first tip is that in any performance situation, and it's a whole range of performance situation, could be just a social situation, you know, you know like at a party, um, it, it's actually okay to feel a little bit uptight or a little bit um, elevated. And, and that's just a natural response to a new situation or a performance or a, an evaluation situation. And so the tip here is to change the way you think about that from being fearful to being excited, to tip it, to see the situation as a challenge or, an, or, or a feeling of excitement rather than a threatening situation. And when I would work with people with this, I would actually say, we would actually realistically analyse what is the threat here? You know, what's the worst thing that can happen? And if the worst thing happened, could you survive that? And what would be the consequences of that? So that's re anything that reduces the sense of threat and switches it more to a sense of challenge or a feeling of excitement uh, is the first thing. And then, you know, looking at our, our self-talk, the way we're talking to ourselves before, during and after a performance or, or an event and, and then changing that the next time you do it. Um, so there's a whole process there of, of changing your self-talk to make it more realistic and helpful. And, what you know, we talked about monitoring your internal weather before. So here we're monitoring the way we're talking to ourselves before an event uh, and then changing it the next time if it's unhelpful. And the third thing is to do relaxation and do mental rehearsal together. And I'm sure you're familiar with this working with athletes is that in a relaxed state, we want to mentally rehearse the situation. So if I'm going for a job interview, I've probably got a good idea of, you know, what the setup's going to be. Um, you know, probably know quite a few of the questions that I might be asked. Um, so I want to actually run through that like I'm rushing, running through a movie but in a relaxed state and I can do that at home and mentally rehearse running through it. Imagine the questions being asked to you, imagining your response to those questions and also imagine if something unexpected happens because something unexpected always happens. Uh, how would I respond to that? Now, I know from uh, my research with professional performers, I'm talking about international performers, uh, they rarely have a performance that's absolutely perfect where they say everything went right. 
you know, and that's that flow state. Sometimes you can get into that flow state where everything just seems to be perfect and it doesn't seem to require any effort. So we need to remind ourselves that no situation where we're in any sort of performance way is going to go perfectly right most of the time. And so something is not going to go right. So we just move on. We don't hang on to that. Um, so that's one of the other tips when we're in a situation is, okay, I didn't say the right thing there, but let's move on and put that away. Uh, I can't repeat that. That's amazing. You know, I love how practical you are. Every Everything you, you share has uh, tips and tools, and that's what I always want to hear. I like stories about how they work, but I always want to know the strategy to achieve the same thing. And I think all of those are really great tips. You know, if you think about um, performance and understanding like it's not going to go uh, right, maybe, um, or, or there's going to be challenges, that's something just to realize. So when it happens, you can then adapt from it. But I think one of the root things that's so important for people to understand is um, it's okay to fail. It's okay to, um, you know, you're going to learn a lot from that failure. And, you know, one of the things I'll say to my clients is like, you know, they're, when we get clear on what it is that they want to create, whether it's a business, a job, a relationship, or whatever creation they want to put out, and uh, they're a little bit nervous, right? And I say, if you can get to the point where your mother, your father, your best friends, and random people across the world write you a handwritten letter about how bad you suck and you still do it, that's the place you want to be because ultimately it doesn't matter what they think if it's an expression of you honestly, if it's your authentic creation. Um, and if you look at art in history, there's some weird stuff out there. You know what I mean? And a lot of people are like, that is terrible. Why would you even do that? Well, if, if you're living your life based on someone else's opinion of you, that's a very disempowered way to live. And sadly, so many people do that because they're afraid of the ridicule. They're afraid of what people would think. They're afraid of failure. And it's not wrong to feel those things. And it's really inspiring and empowering to have the courage to overcome that. So even though you might fail, even though people might ridicule you, um, the first thing to understand is even if the worst thing happens, it's probably not going to be as bad as you can imagine it. Mm. Um, the other thing is if it's as bad as you can imagine it and you actually live through that, you'll be so empowered after because the worst thing had happened. And so now you can create freely being like, all right, the worst thing happened. You know what I mean? Now that's done and that's in the past and I can continue to create because that space or the feeling of you wanting to create is your authentic self. It's the thing that you want to do and that's why it's vulnerable. You know, and you talked a little bit about the ego, you know, like letting that go. Um, my thought on the ego is the ego is necessary and good. Like we have to have an ego in the sense of I have preferences. I prefer to go skateboarding when I have some free time. I now prefer to hang out with my daughter too when I have some free time. I prefer to do a podcast about subjects that I like. Um, now, e ego can get, um, I can't think of a better word other than unhelpful when we do things like, oh, I'm going to buy this car so they think this of me or I'm going to make this action so they think that's when it can kind of be damaging or we puff up our ego to um, change a circumstance or, or whatever the case is rather than just being authentically us. I think being our authentic selves is really empowering and we want to move through our preferences and because whatever we want to create, 
whatever we're inspired to do, that's the vulnerable thing. You know, that's why it's so hard because we're like, oh, what? A, it's like if they hate this piece of art, they hate me, right? Because this is my my deep expression. So I'm wondering if you can just kind of speak on that a little bit. Yeah, look, it it's, it's, uh, reminds me of, um, of, of an incident that happens. You know, it's talked about. I, I, I realized I wasn't going to go back to working in psychology like I had before, but yet I had all this experience to draw on and knowledge to draw on, and I still had the motivation to help people. And that's when I thought, well, maybe I could write. And I'd been a good writer before, but only in a professional sense, you know, like writing court reports. So people could understand it, but it still had to be formulaic. It was fairly technical. And, you know, I had to be able to stand up in a court of law and justify what I'd written. So, I have, you know, you have to reference everything. Um, but to write in a narrative way, a story-driven way, I realized, you know, that I needed to write with more emotion and use more poetic words and and more description more sensory description if you want to take people into a scene you've got to set the scene for them so that's nothing like the sort of writing the technical writing i'd done before but i thought oh i'm good at that sort of writing so i'll be good at this sort of writing and um i i joined a local writers group that were you know people also working on memoirs because a more experienced writer said look it's good to join a writer's group so you can read some of your writing and get feedback. So I did that. And uh, I remember one day, uh, you know, fairly early on, coming writing a piece about one of the scenes that I thought might be in a, in a memoir. At this stage, I hadn't, I hadn't got a publisher or anything like that. And I read this scene thinking, oh, you know, I've really nailed it. And, um, and the feedback from one of the guys was, Oh, that's so pedestrian. And uh, and the other said, there's no emotion here. I don't know what you're feeling. <laughs> and I was taken aback. I was just really surprised that I hadn't written, you know, a beautiful piece of prose like I thought I had. But, but you know, I said, okay, where do you think there could be <laughs> more emotion? And, and, you know, they pointed that out. And I, and I realized that they, they had done the best thing for me. It was a writer's group. So it was set up to be honest and you need that honesty. You need honest feedback from people that understand writing. So I, it's different from getting feedback from people that are just friends who always want to say the best thing for you. Um, you need honesty. You need authenticity. And so that really helped me develop getting feedback like that um to get good at writing and you know i did writing courses and i went to writing workshops and i just got more and more used to exposing my writing to to others particularly other writers and and people in in the publishing industry knowing that that's the way i had to do it if i was going to get better um you know like if you're in a sport you need a coach that tells you what's not working as well as what is working, you particularly need them to tell you what's not working and not be afraid to tell you that. And you need to want that as well. So, uh, you know, if something is really important to you, like you said, you know, you just keep coming back, you keep coming back. Uh, this is where failure is actually the learning process. 
we need to fail first before we su succeed because it's very rare that we're going to get something right, you know, the first time we do it. Yeah, absolutely. You brought up a lot of great points there. And I just think about criticism, you know, like sometimes people are just being uh, not ideal, but just to, to have your work or your expressions just um, honestly reviewed by people you care about. Start there, but to get to the point where you want the feedback, right? And you're not attached. I think it's like a push and pull, right? You, you, um, want to stay centered in yourself and express in the way that you want to express, but be open so that maybe you're not seeing the things that other people are going to help and provide for you. And if we stay closed, it's probably not the best way that we can improve our skills. And so understanding that criticism and failure is a part of it, but don't make it a bad thing. Right. So, so often people think it's bad. It's like, no, I, I did this public speaking and, and it failed. Great. Try again. Right. That's, one of the main things with skateboarding, it's just constant failure all over and over and over. And it teaches you just to keep trying and then you get it, right? Whether you write a book or, or whatever, there's just countless stories of authors and artists and people who tried and tried and tried. And it's like, oh, all of those failures and all of those earlier versions, like if you're making an app, you have the beta version and you keep going and going and going. And then all of a sudden, you know, the hundredth reiteration is the one, but you, you molded it. You know what I mean? You start with a rough one. You're like, this is a horse and the, the legs aren't even cut out yet. It's just like two and two rather than four and four. And then over a while you create a masterpiece and that comes over time and it must include failure and feedback. And, you know, people call it criticism, but if you can get okay with that and uh, become okay with that and, and actually want it, and then be able to apply it critically without taking it personally. It's a very powerful space to be in, you know, and you're going to um, be able to do your work in a more authentic way and you're going to be able to improve a lot quicker. And if you fear it, you're going to stunt your growth because you're going to create a lot less, right? You're going to be in your head worried about someone else's opinion. So, um, you know, this has been amazing. I want to honor your time. I could probably talk to you all day. Your books are incredibly fascinating. Do you, what do you, is there anything that you wish that I'd asked or is there anything that you want to cover before we go? I've got time. So if you want to uh, go on another topic, I'm here waiting. And, um, but yeah, this has been really great. And I really appreciate how everything you have shared is just so practical and your personal experience is truly extraordinary. So, you know, um, to be living proof of these techniques and, and what's possible, uh, even on smaller scales, right? Because people deal with trauma every day on small scales and on big scales. And I feel like if we apply what you had shared today, we can be much more empowered for dealing with, you know, a lot of the things that, that you have to deal with in human life. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Look, maybe what we can finish up on is talking about suffering, trauma, and how there's a positive in all of that. Um, and particularly, you know, given the current world situation with the pandemic, people are experiencing a lot of disruption, a lot of upheaval, things that, you know, have befallen them and they've not had any choice in that. So how do we deal with something, some major life upheaval, which we haven't chosen, which isn't fair, we don't deserve it. Uh, some people get the, up, the upheaval and the disruption and some people don't. Um, why, why them or why me and not them, you know, that sort of thing. So I'd just like to talk on that a bit and talk about the positive aspects of that. Things come along in life that we haven't predicted. You know, it could be a life-threatening illness. It could be a sudden divorce. 
It could be the loss of a child before their time. It could be, you know, financial ruin. Uh, it could be a natural disaster. Uh, you know, in my book, for example, you know, one of the people that um, I profile or tell the story is of, of Sandra Bond, who's healthy young woman, you know, married to, to a really good supportive partner. She's got a first child. She's pregnant and everything's going beautifully. And then it's her partner Jeremy's birthday. So she thinks I'll go for the ultrasound on his birthday, you know, because you have to have the ultrasounds at various points. And I'll make it for his birthday. So it'll be a good news thing, you know, how well the baby's going. But it turns out that the ultrasound reveals that their baby or embryo has three uh, heart defects. And they go on this roller coaster thing where they have to see various pediatric specialists. And the news just gets worse and worse with, with each investigation, with each specialist that they see. And they have to make a decision is this child, because of the defects, they're just way beyond being treatable to the point where this child is going to live for very long, even if it's born. Um, but they decide, because of the options they're given, to have uh, no surgery after the birth and probably, you know, their little boy is going to be stillborn. And they choose that because that would be the least amount of suffering for him, and they call him Noah. And so she goes into the hospital. She has to go into the maternity wing because that's where, you know, the obstetrics is. She can't go in the general ward. So she's surrounded by all these other mothers that are having babies and the joyful relatives coming in and the flowers and the teddy bears and all of that. And she knows that that's not going to be her. That's not going to be her result. And yet she has the courage to go through this process and she walks out without a baby and walks past all these uh, other mothers and relatives celebrating. Uh, but in the hospital, they give you a teddy bear so you can walk out with something. It's a very sad story. Um, but what happened was she didn't know how she would cope with that in the end. Um, and she just went, she just went into a sort of a deep depression for about three months, just stayed at home and, uh, you know, was on various medication to help her sleep. But at some point she realised that actually she had become a mother for the first time and that actually all the love that she'd felt for this unborn child was real and that he was a real baby. He came out stillborn, but he was still a beautiful baby and her, her mother was there and the grandmother held the baby and Jeremy held the baby, she held the baby, um, that there were a lot of positives in her experience and she actually felt a lot of gratitude for having gone through that experience. And then, you know, with Jeremy's support, she emerged again into the community and started to tell her story. And the more she told the story, the more she realised the amount of courage that she'd had, both her and Jeremy, to make the decision that they did to ease the suffering of the child and have the stillborn birth rather than having him alive and going through lots of surgery and being in hospital most of his life and being on, you know, a hundred different drugs. Um, and then, you know, her grandmother, ex her, well, the, the boy's grandmother experiencing him. And so she experienced a lot of growth and then they went on to help some friends who also had a baby who died in the cot, you know, a cot death. Um, 
So one of the things that happens when we go through some sort of trauma or major upheaval is that we find courage we didn't realize we had. And everybody has this courage. So even if you think, you know, on a day-to-day basis, sometimes I don't even know if I can get through this day. And I've experienced that myself when I was going through my difficult years. You just put one foot in front of the other. You don't worry about tomorrow. You just say, how do I get through today? How do I get through to lunchtime? How do I get through to dinner time? How do I, you know, go through the night? And you do all the things you need to do to get through. And slowly, you know, a window opens and you start to see new opportunities. And that courage, you will have that forevermore. You will find that that courage will take you through other major life upsets that may before you or may before people that you care about, friends or family, and you can be there for them in a way you couldn't have been there for them before. And a lot of people that go through this and experience post-traumatic growth talk about gratitude. They talk about how they appreciate the little things in life a lot more, the simple pleasures. Uh, they talk about being much more, uh, having a greater zest for life, you know, jumping at opportunities rather than thinking, oh, I'll do that one day. Uh, you know, I've experienced this. I just jump at opportunities now because I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. There may not be a tomorrow. And it's not being morbid or sad. It's just saying, hey, let's seize this opportunity. You know, Matt's invited me to be on his podcast. Great, let's do it. Rather than, oh, I don't know whether it's the right thing for me to do. So we grow in lots of ways. So I, I guess the message I'd like to leave your listeners, Matt, particularly with things that are happening at the moment, all the fallout that's happening at the moment and will continue to happen for some time, is that disruptions will happen, what we might call bad things will happen, but you can find the courage to survive them. As long as you reach out to other people, you look for social connection, you find the right people to help you, open to new opportunities, new possibilities, new ways of being. You know, if your life story suddenly goes on a different tangent, okay, that's my new life story. So change your life story. Don't get too hung up on the way you thought it should go, but think, okay, things have changed. I'm going this way now. And you will come out a better person. And I actually like to use the word wisdom. I think people develop wisdom through this. And you'll often hear people say, I had a stroke or I lost a child. Uh, I wouldn't want that to happen again. And if I've lost a child, I certainly would like to have the child go back and maybe let go of some of the life lessons that I've learned. But the majority of people say, I really want to keep the life lessons I've learned. I feel I'm a much better person uh, given what's happened. Holy wow. Well, that's a uh, very, it's a, challenging story it's a beautiful story um but the lessons in there are are something i feel like we can all relate to you know i'm i bring up the story of uh immaculate i always get her name wrong immaculate abiza or something and uh people correct me in the comments and they throw it in there all the time but it's about this woman who went through the rwanda um experience and had you know friends and family murdered and all this kind of thing and you know coming out the other side of and experiencing compassion for the people that did that you know like her words like you can feel it and it's it's incredibly powerful 
And I think that if you go through it, there's just no easy way. You know, in alchemy, they talk about lead from gold, but they also say it's the emotional alchemy. So I think you're right. And sometimes it's one foot in front of the other. But to know that if you can just endure it, if you can keep going, if you can look for the opportunities, right? But it doesn't mean you have to rush it. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. Uh, um, it's just knowing that, you know, there there is going to be light at the end of the tunnel. And one of the most beautiful things, too, that I've experienced with people that I know who've been on the podcast or friends that I'm with or people that I met in my travels who went through the worst things. Um, you know, losing, losing a child is up there, right? I, I know somebody who's had that happen to them and, and other really horrendous things. Uh, some of them too, of like things that they did, that they, that they did awful things and they're trying to forgive themselves for when they are able to get to the other side. And sometimes it takes months or years to do the ability to help others who are going through something similar as bad or, or not as bad is, is amazing. And they end up using it as a tool to help so many other people. And it becomes a very beautiful thing. And like you said, there are gifts on the other side, but it, it doesn't it doesn't take away from the pain and the suffering and the challenge of going through it. But it is helpful to know that there can be light at the end of the tunnel. So I uh, really appreciate the story. And I know that you have 11 other stories similar to that in the book. Um, and so just thank you for coming on and thank you for the work that you're doing. Um, where can people find you and, uh, get your books and, uh, stay connected? Well, uh, you know, I can give you a link to put on your, you know, with the podcast, uh, Matt, if you, if you want to do that. Uh, but yeah, I've got a website, which is basically my name and the books available through, you know, all the major online retailers as an audio book and as an ebook and a print book. So it's davidroland.com? Yeah, david, au for Australia. Right. Awesome. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I definitely look forward to stay connected and just continuing to um, you know, watch your work evolve because it's, it's very beautiful. So thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Matt. You've been great. Uh, my pleasure. See you guys. Thanks for watching.